We live in a, a world which I think I don't think it's any different um, to the world down through the centuries, millennia. Maybe we have just far, far more ways to express the kind of desires that we have. Uh, and we live in a world where we express more openly than probably we ever have done our hopes. We hope for all sorts of things. We have all sorts of ways in which we can communicate those hopes and desires. And in fact, we live, we live now in a culture where those hopes and those desires, it's no longer uh, uncomfortable for us if somebody else expresses their hopes and desires. There was a time in years gone past, maybe decades, as recently as decades, when the idea of being really open with our feelings and our hopes was something that was really uncomfortable. You know, it was almost as uncomfortable as speaking about religion or politics. Don't talk about that stuff that's very self-centered. But now we're there, uh, and we speak so very openly about our hopes. Uh, and our hope is rooted, I think, there is a constant underlying kind of feature to hope. And it's this experience, this desperate desire for human beings to be content. There is, there is, an, there is a discontentedness in, in our very being. We express discontentedness in all sorts of ways. That's why we hope for something different. We're looking to something different to, to solve this kind of uncomfortable discontentedness that we feel. It will be better if we have stable family relationships. Well, of course, that would be a good thing. But we hope in a way which is desperately placing our future security in the possibility of that. Our hopes may be for financial stability. They're all rooted in a place of future contentment. The idea that that place makes us content. We'll be okay when we get to that place. Here's a confession. One, I'm going to, I'm going to read the first few lines of probably one of the most famous songs about hope. Here's the lines. Somewhere over the rainbow... Way up high, and the dreams that you dream of once in a lullaby. That actually doesn't even make good English sense to me. But, but that's the first few lines of an iconic song of hope. That's the first comment. The second comment is a bit of a... I'm, kind of, I'm a bit proud of this confession, actually. I have never seen The Wizard of Oz. That's, that's kind of... That is... At 53, that to me seems to me to be a success in life. I've never seen it. And some of you might get a hold of me, get a grip on me at the end and say, man, you have missed out. I beg to differ. <laughs> but even that, it's kind of, what is it, that intangible end of the rainbow hope? It's something that is a possibility best thing to come out of Wizard of Oz is the Halifax advert, because it kind of captures the idea of the, the kind of weakness of that kind of hope. I haven't got a clue what it means, but he says, do that tap-tap thing with your shoes. 
If, if our hope is rooted in a tap-tap thing with our shoes, we've got real problems, haven't we? But it gives a little indication of the way in which we use hope, that word hope. When we use the word hope in our culture, in, in the way that we speak about it, it's not a hope which is secure. It's a hope which is a possibility or a desire or a maybe. And it's really, really important for us to get to grips with this. That's the way we use the word hope. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses that word hope in most cases in a very different way. It uses hope with an absolute security in what we are looking forward to. So hope isn't a possibility, it's a definite. That's a different kind of hope, isn't it? So I want us to kind of plug that into our thinking as we get into this psalm. The hope that we talk about from the Bible is a confidence in what we're looking forward to. Now that is remarkably different. That is groundbreaking, life-changing in terms of the way the Bible describes hope compared to our desperate desires for hope. We hope for contentment. And the Bible says you should hope for contentment. You should hope with an assurance and a confidence that the contentment that you hope for is not clouded with the possibility of the way that we use that word hope. The contentment that you hope for is assured. Now, I, want to, I want us to work through why that is the case as we look at this psalm. This psalm is a, it's a great psalm. It's a psalm that would have been sung as people were traveling uh, towards the temple. And there's lots of temple language in this, but we're going to see why this psalm doesn't keep us back there in ancient Israel. It takes us forward to a greater degree of hope. The first thing that we see is that hope is rooted in presence. Look at the way it opens up. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Wow. That, that's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? The psalmist is writing in a way where as they are traveling, they are yearning desperately for something. And it's something which is so remarkably different to their day-to-day -day experience. But it's not just an experience that they're yearning for, it's a presence that they are yearning for. My, soul's yearn, even, uh, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Let's put our Hebrew sandals on and imagine that we're on the journey towards the temple. For many, it would have been a long journey. 
something that they look forward to. For many, it would have been a routine journey because they maybe lived in Jerusalem. But there is this idea, as we, and we consistently say that this is an important understanding of the temple, is that it was the symbolic presence of God. That's what, that's what the temple meant. That's what it said. The temple says, God is with you. And when you go into that place, you are entering into the presence of the God who is with you. That's why the temple was different. The temple wasn't a place to worship that God who is out there. There is a sense in which the temple is that statement by God that says, I am with you, so come into my presence to worship me. Be with me. Presence is an incredibly important aspect for us, isn't it? Think about some of the things that we yearn for in our human experience. Some of them are shaped by presence. In fact, the loss of presence is equally one of those themes which fills so many songs. The idea of losing the presence of somebody, it, it fills sad songs. So the idea that we reverse that and we sing joyfully about being in the presence of somebody is quite normal in our songs. And yet this elevates us to a whole other level where it says, when you sing, when you fill your heart with song, fill your heart with the kind of song that says, what I yearn for is your presence. I yearn to be with you. That's, I think that's why I got really um, emotional in that first song. Because it reminded me of those moments, those really, really powerful, special, precious moments where when filled with fear, there is the comforting presence of God. That's what changed those dark nights, the confidence of the presence of God. That's, an, that's something which is worth singing about, the psalmist says. It's worth reminding ourselves that being in the presence of God is a thing to be valued. But think about it for another minute. Why is that different from the other things that we hope and we cherish in this world? I think our world is filled with promises that fail. Presence that isn't always there. Maybe because of disruption of relationship, or maybe for all sorts of reasons, the natural ending of relationship. But there is nothing in this world that can assure us of the kind of constant presence that the eternal God can promise us. That, that's, that, that's almost self-evident by the claim that God is an eternal being. If God is an eternal being, He can never fail in that promise of presence. And so I want to ask us as we think about this, where's our hope? 
I, like you, I so easily get sidetracked and place my hopes in temporary things and don't place my hope in the presence of the eternal God. I so easily do it. And, and I need moments like this, moments when we sing, moments when I'm reminded again and again and again in God's Word that the thing that I really need more than anything else is not the temporary things of this world, but the presence of God. I need that. That's why we sing it. Because if we don't sing it regularly, if we don't read it regularly, if we don't pray it regularly, if we don't remind ourselves regularly, we get swept in the, into the temporary and we lose sight of the eternal. That's why God is encouraging us to say, it's important for you to be part of something that reminds you regularly. You need it. I need it. That means I need you. I need you to be part of this that reminds us of these things, that God is the God who is eternally present. And I, I rely on you as you rely on all of us to be part of that process. That's why God's people become a corporate gathering of singers about hope in God. Second thing we see, we see strength. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Do you see there's the pilgrimage language heading to the temple? As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. That's, that's a description of a journey filled with powerful language, arriving in the place of God in Zion, Zion, that holy city, Jerusalem, that place of the temple, that's kind of when we get to that place of comfort. But the place of comfort has got a journey in between, and it's got this place called the Valley of Baca. We, we don't really know what that means. We don't know where it was. We don't know whether it's a figurative place, whether it's a literal place, there's all sorts of debate. I think the debate's interesting, but it doesn't really help us. But if we look at that and we say, well, what does it kind of suggest to us? It seems as though passing through the valley of Baca with the presence of God means that that place got, gets transformed into something else. A place which is a fearful place gets transformed into a place which is a place of comfort. So it's saying, while we're on this journey to the presence of God, we will hit valleys of Baca. I've hit them. You, many of you, I know you have hit them because we've walked through that valley together. Many of you will have hit that valley quietly by yourself. There are many times where that valley is a difficult place. There are two meanings for Baca. One is shrubs or shrubbery. One is tears. Now, it could be that 
The idea is it's dried up shrubs that the spring rains enliven again. That's a possibility. I guess my own feeling is it's tears. And there's a, there's a really clever, poetic play on words. The valley of tears that I experience is transformed by the glorious rain of the presence of God that brings refreshment. Do you see that? The falling of my tears and the falling of refreshing tears from heaven. It's a play on words, I think. That's where, that's where I believe it is. But I, I know this. This is written in a way which speaks directly into our experience as believers in Jesus, and it's quite simply this. It will not always be easy. You might have heard, become a Christian and everything's lovely and beautiful and fluffy and cloudy and everything's nice. And the reality of that is it, don't, don't even believe that. Because it isn't. You are not transformed, and God doesn't move you from this kind of the, the challenges of the, our life experience as human beings and place you in this Christian bubble or kind of cotton wool jacket where you are completely insulated from any challenges or difficulties or hardships. That is not going to happen. But what can happen is that the presence of God can become our strength when the tears are falling. He doesn't stop the tears from falling, but when the tears are falling, He can become our strength. You might be listening to this thinking, can I trust this kind of God? Am I going to get on board with this idea of the Christian faith? If I'm going to say to you, do not believe that the Christian faith is all hunky-dory, you might say, well, I'll not bother. But what I do want to say to you is that the comfort of God becomes a place of unbelievable hope in the most difficult of situations. That the tears will flow, but they will fall onto a ground which is not parched, but enjoys the rain of heaven and the shrubs living again by the presence of God. What a beautiful picture that is portrayed. Is that a familiar place to you? Is, is, is that Valley of Bacca a place where you say, do you know what? I feel that I'm always there. <laughs> Keep on walking through that valley. Keep going. Because there is the place of Zion at the end of the valley. That's what this says. So we've got presence, we've got strength, and now we've got shield. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. I find, I, do you know when I first read that, that kind of confused me. You would say, you would think, wouldn't you, that God would say, I'm going to give you a shield. And therefore, you have this shield that I'm going to give you, and you're all going to be okay. Therefore, why would the psalmist say, look on our shield? We've got the shield. It, it sounds strange, doesn't it? I think what makes sense 
is Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 16, where we understand that we are to take up the shield of faith. (laughs) We're to take up the shield of faith, and the shield of faith that we take up becomes the shield that is ours. What's the psalmist saying? He's saying, look at the shield that we are relying on. It's the shield of faith. The shield, the only shield that we have actually. We haven't got any better shield. We can't stand against the issues that cause the valley of Baca. We can't stand against the fears in our own strength. We need something outside of us and that shield is a shield which is faith in that something outside of us, which is the God who we love. See that difference? That's why the psalmist says, look on our shield. The shield that we have is the faith that we have in God. I tell you what, do you know what? I think, you know, I, I'm going to use the reference again because it's just, just my, one of my favorite films, Gladiator. It's just brilliant. It's amazing. But you definitely have that idea. You get a real kind of sense of a shield, don't you? When you get the camera right behind the Roman armies, and you get this sense of the shield and the way that they used their shields to protect the whole of the company of soldiers as they advanced forward, and it's amazing, and it's powerful, and it's protective, and it's fantastic, and it's nothing like my shield of faith. (laughs) My shield of faith is not made out of incredibly strong oak with leather cover and metal strappings all around it. I feel my shield of faith is made out of straw, and it's cobbled together with a bit of mud here and there, and I've tied a bit of string on it around at the back, and I'm trying to defend against the most terrifying things with a little bit of straw. That's how my shield of faith feels. But from heaven's perspective, I've got a shield of faith like Captain America. Nothing's going to get through. Because the faith that strengthens me and shields me, which is weak and powerless from my point of view, is actually the faith that God implants in me, which can stand against anything. Isn't that amazing? So we can turn around and we can say, look at our shield in two ways. We can kind of say, look at our shield, give us something better. Or we can say, look at our shield, look what you have given me. Look what you've given me. More than anything that I could ever imagine. I have faith in something that I could never have believed. I love, I love our church where there's so many folks who, who kind of express, do you know what? I, I never, never expected to believe in this lot. <laughs> I never expected to have faith in this God. And yet God has given you a faith and a shield which is beyond your wildest dreams, stronger than you could ever imagine. That's the kind of faith, that, the kind of shield that is given to us. And we have grace. Better is one day in the courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. 
For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk, whose walk is blameless. Better is one day in, the, in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. What's your best day? What is your best day? Not in the past summer. I mean ever. I want you to take that day and just ponder the emotions and the experiences of that one day and then multiply it by a thousand times and it's not even close to being in the presence of God. But do you see what he says? I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. There was a, when, you, when you look back now, there was a horrific program. It was a sitcom. It ain't half hot, mum, in the 70s. When you look back, the racism that, was, it, that infiltrated the whole of it was awful. Sat outside was a guy who was just ignored, kind of kicked around. And all he did was he sat outside pulling the rope so that the fan inside would blow on the nice white British people inside. It was horrendous when you look back and see what was being portrayed. But what was being portrayed was a reality. Because that's what colonialism was like. Colonialism was that racist. Colonial was colonialism was that imposing. The colonialism was that superior where whites going into other parts of the world believed that they had a superiority, which meant effectively that everybody else stood outside the door and were worthless and meaningless. And that's what it was like in the ancient world. The doorkeeper was that forgotten person who stayed out in the sun and the rain, unprotected, that the superior people ignored. And yet, what do we see? The Lord is our sun and shield. To be a doorkeeper in God's presence is not kicked out and forgotten. The doorkeeper is valued. The doorkeeper is given warmth, and the doorkeeper is given a shield. The doorkeeper is treated with value. That is undeserved. And it is grace. That's why being a doorkeeper in the presence of God is better than anywhere else. It's, a, it's kind of like, it's, it's filled with that idea of the prodigal son who comes back to his father. And he says, it would be better for me to be a servant in my father's house than carry on feeding pigs. I'd bet I, at least I would have a roof over my head, I'd have food in my stomach, and I'd be protected a little bit. It would be hard work, but I would be willing to do that. And he turns up in that place, and what he receives is grace poured out on him. That's the picture that this doorkeeper picture is portraying. The one who's ignored and the lowest of the low becomes the one who is valued in the presence of God. I don't know about you, but I don't feel worthy to be in the presence of God. 
when I really, really dig deep, and maybe that's, maybe that's one of those times when those dark hours in the middle of the night are those moments of <sighs> Satan, the great accuser, becomes, runs ragged with my mind and my emotions, and I get filled up with all of the reasons why there's no way I could possibly even be a believer in Jesus with who I am and what I am. It's just like you, you call yourself that, and then you have this, boom, <laughs> it's not about you. I will pour out grace on you when you don't deserve it. I will encourage you when your heart is failing. I will be your son when it's cold, and I will be your shield when the sun is burning down on you. You might say that you are only worthy to be a doorkeeper. And that's a good place to be because you'll be surprised that when you arrive, I'll put a coat on you and put a ring on your finger and I will value you and I will love you like a son. And then you will love maybe to stand outside and to be the doorkeeper. But you will know that you're loved. What transforms this from being some sort of spiritual pep talk? You know, let, let's all feel good. Let's all sing about the presence of God. What transforms this is that this is what Jesus lived. Jesus came into this world and we, we see the incredible sacrifice. We get a little insight into what He left to be here. And then we read in Hebrews the way in which Jesus thought about the, His valley of Baca. The valley of tears. The place which was the most fearful of places. We see what Jesus thought about it. Hebrews 12 and verse 2. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. What does that mean? The pioneer is the one who went before. The perfecter is the one who models it perfectly. That's what Jesus is. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. When Jesus was walking through his valley of Baca, what was on his mind? The joy set before him. I, I'm looking at that thinking, Jesus, Gethsemane, taken into the high priest's court, taken into Pilate's court, taken by the soldiers and scourged, all of those kind of things. That's terrible, but we, there was all of the build-up to that moment. His disciples deserting him. The fact that when he entered into Jerusalem that last time, he knew that that would be the last time he was joyfully received and everything else was going to be on a downhill from here. He was entering into that valley of Baca. What was his mindset? The joy that was set would be for him. In other words, Jesus was able to say, being in your courts, Father, being in your courts is better 
And I believe that that is what's going to happen. I, I know that that's what's going to happen. I know that the enduring of the cross is going to be for a time because I believe you and I trust you and I have confidence that I will arrive at Zion. That's Jesus. We read it in Hebrews 12 too. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and what? Sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you take the content of this psalm and you say, Jesus is on a journey, a pilgrimage if you like, and the valley of Baca is part of that journey, and it's filled with tears, but his mindset was, Zion is not in doubt. It's not in doubt. It is going to happen. I am going to die. I am going to return to be with my Father. That's what Hebrews says. That changes everything for us, doesn't it? It means that I can say that the fears that I have and the concerns that I have and the desperate desire for the presence of the eternal God is not a temporary presence of the eternal God. It is an eternal presence of the eternal God because Jesus has gone first. And therefore, I can sing. It's going to be better to be in your presence. It's going to be better. I don't know about you. I, you know, I really, really, really probably used to wind me up when I was young. And old guys used to say, oh, the closer you get, the more you want heaven. <laughs> used to wind up and think, come on, life's great. Look at all the things you can do. You can play football in heaven, ride motorbikes, build cars. I think possibly there's all sorts of things that heaven and earth is going to be, but that, I didn't think about that when I was a kid. I just thought there is way too much stuff to do that the presence of God seems boring. But you know, the further and further on through life, the more I get to a point where I say, I desperately, desperately want the presence of God. I do. That is not a morbid thing. I want to enjoy His presence now in this life. I don't want to die tomorrow. I want to die at 110 enjoying His presence now but I des desperately want to be there more than here. Because that's what heaven is like. The presence of God is that valuable. And that's why the psalm concludes by saying, Almighty, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. It is a blessing to trust in that. Because quite frankly, there isn't anything else, is there, that can compare? What else can compare? What else can we be blessed with? Blessed with temporary riches? Blessed with temporary relationships? Blessed with temporary joy? It is absolutely true, Lord, we are blessed if we have in sight that eternal joy. I want to encourage you to take this 
these thoughts and to create for yourselves ideas that go off for the rest of this week in work, whatever you're doing. Ideas that say, I, I want to do this really well, that's fine, but there's something way better. There is something way better. When the fears come, there is something way better.